It's that time of the year. Your vacation is coming up. You can already hear the beach waves, feel the warm breeze, relax, and think about work. You really, really want it all to work out while you're away. Monday.com gives you and the team that peace of mind. When all work is on one platform and everyone's in sync, things just flow. Wherever you are, tap the banner to go to monday.com. The Telegraph. Telegraph. Podcasts. I'm David Knowles, and this is Ukraine, the latest. Today... We discuss the diplomatic fallout between Paris and Kyiv and analyse the Russian oil price cap that comes into effect today. We also hear from our global health reporter, Harriet Barber, on sexual violence in Russia's invasion of Ukraine. This hideous and barbaric venture of Vladimir Putin must end in failure. Putin's war in Ukraine has destabilized energy markets the world over. Nobody's going to break us. We're strong. We're Ukrainians. Every weekday afternoon, we sit down with leading journalists from The Telegraph's London newsroom and our teams reporting on the ground to bring you the latest news and analysis on the war in Ukraine. It's Monday, the 5th of December, day 285. And today, I'm joined by our associate editor, Dominic Nichols, our economics editor, Sue Chan, and our assistant foreign editor, Arthur Scott Geddes, making his debut on the podcast. I started by asking Dom for the latest news from Ukraine. Well, hi, David, and hello, everybody. Hello, Arthur. Um, okay, so there's the air raid alarms are going off as we speak in Kyiv. Um, I've seen various reports of missiles that have been shot down and others that haven't it's all completely spurious at the moment we don't have any firm data so as of going live now just after 1300 uh, gmt on monday this will be different obviously for the pod a bit later but as of now we do not know so so just be very very careful of any information that you see claiming such and such has been shot down or x number of missiles have got through we just do not know but the air raid alarms are are going now this is something we've been expecting for a couple of weeks. In fact, Ukraine, the Ministry of Defence in Ukraine have been saying for a couple of weeks now that they are expecting, they were, they have been expecting a, a very large wave of missile strikes again. We've seen this over the last few months. This is what Russia, well, the only thing Russia can do now, basically. They're, they're going nowhere on the battlefield. Bit of skirmishing around Bakhmut in the centre. I say bit of skirmishing, it's, it's extremely violent, but what I mean is the lines aren't moving much. But essentially Russia is not able to do anything on the battlefield. All they're able to do is try to terrorise Ukrainian civilian population through these attacks on critical national infrastructure. So it looks like this, the the wave of attacks which seem to be uh, happening now are what uh, Ukraine has been expecting for the last couple of weeks. Now that might be separate to or related uh, because of a couple of incidents this morning. Now, two Russian long-range aviation bases deep inside Russia, um, one only about 150 k's south of Moscow, the other one about, about 600 k's south of Moscow, but both a very, very long way away from Ukraine. Two Russian long-range aviation bases have been subject to 
some kind of violent attack. And again, you can tell I'm choosing my words very carefully here because on social media, people are saying it's drone strikes. It's a new drone that Ukraine have developed capable of a thousand kilometers. It's not it's this, it's that. Again, we do not know. Um, all we do know is that uh, that Russian state news are saying that one of them was was caused by a fuel a fuel truck that exploded and killed three people. So we know that that's not true. Um, so it might be something else, but we do not know what. So firstly, let's have, let's have a look at these two these two bases. The first one uh, is called or it's near the city of Ryazan, Jagalevo Russian Air Base. Uh, near near Ryazan, about 150k southeast of Moscow. There was a blast this morning, Monday morning, which, like I say, um, Russian state news are saying a fuel tanker exploded, killing three and injuring two. There's footage on social media of a very large, very large explosion, um, but you know, we don't we don't know what it what it is. Now, separately, um, 600k southeast of Moscow, there's another another base. Um, or called Engels, Engels uh, Air Base, 600k southeast of Moscow. That has been subject to a, a much larger blast. Again, um, you can see those on on social media. Ukraine not claimed responsibility for either incident, but Engels houses the 121st Heavy Heavy Bomber Aviation Regiment, and um, Jagalevo is a training centre and also houses Russia's only IL-78. That's the Aleutian, big, big, heavy Aleutian um, tanker, air refuelling tanker uh, base. Um, across both of them are the TU-95s and the TU-160 strategic bombers. TU-95, we know better by the, the NATO code name of, of BEAR. It's a large four-engine um, propeller strategic bomber. It's, it's old, first flown in 1952, but it's it's still there. It's been in service since 56. It's it's um, but a bit like the B-52, the USB B-52. The airframe is old, but it's been upgraded. Even even these old Russian planes have been upgraded over the years, so they're still very capable. And what they do is they they're launching these. Um, uh, well, it's from these aircraft that the air-launched cruise missiles are being uh, thrown at at Ukraine. So. And the TU-95, that's the bear. The TU-160 is uh, similar, but it's supersonic. Uh, it's a variable swept wing, heavy strategic bomber. Again, pretty old back in the 1970s. But hey, just because you're born in the 1970s doesn't mean you're old. Um, stop it, Arthur. Um, so there's they are the strategic bombing fleet across these sites. Now, there are other Russian airfields that can launch these big heavy bombers, but there's not many of them. There's only another, another two or three dotted around Russia. Um, so... If this is a if this is a strike, it is it is um, it is very significant. Now that's what we know so far. I'm now going to move into a little bit of speculation and analysis. So what what does this mean? I'm you know I'm I'm skeptical of some hitherto unseen massively long ranged drone, um, but yeah, it, entirely possible. If it is a drone, then that means that there will be hundreds of Russian bases, headquarters, logistic depots now in range of ukraine if it is indeed ukraine which we should assume assume it is so what do what can russia do about it we know their air defense is not is not brilliant they're kind of you know a little bit asleep on on the watch um so they probably should have shot this these things down they've not been very good around belgorod which is a lot closer to ukraine so the 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 expectation that Russian air defence hundreds of kilometres away from Ukraine will be will be in tippity tip top number one um, you know state of readiness is unlikely. However, uh, these sites should have air defence around them. 
what might Russia do now? They might disperse the fleet to these other air, air bases, as, as I've described. We've seen them do that before. So where there was that uh, the maritime drone, the, the, the un, uncrewed surface vessel, the maritime drone, basically, that um, went into um, Sevastopol Harbour, we know that Russia firstly upped their protection of the Black Sea Fleet and moved their Kilo-class submarines um, out of there. So, you know, they are they are very, very quick to... Um, to not for quick to not accept the strategic risk I've, I've mangled that sentence but what i mean is that they're quick to move their very valuable assets away from the new threat so maybe that they're going to do something here um now whether or not there are going to be more of these strikes whether or not it was a drone strike whether or not it's some sf team with a with a with a drone locally we, we we simply do not know but it's almost that's almost not the point russia now have to take this into account um, the, in terms of how they affect their military posture. And also, these strikes are deep inside Russia. So this is going to play into the Russian social media channels. It's going to play into the civilian population. We know that the war is not is, is waning in popularity. So this is yet again showing um, the Russian civilian population that they're in a, in a proper fight and not a special military operation. So maybe they don't need to do many more of these strikes, if, if any at all. There are reports that two of the bears, the Tu-95s, were damaged. We've absolutely no idea. We can't, we can't verify that at all. But we know they've got, they've got many, many more aircraft and, and missiles. So actually, if that's what it's achieved, that's, that's not a huge amount of actual damage. But that is not the point. Just being able to do it and being able to put that seed of doubt into your enemy's mind is uh, is a large part of these kind of strategic um, strategic attacks. Now, as we say, there are um, air raids going off right now over over Ukraine. Uh, about an hour ago, the Ukrainian Ministry of Defence said that 14 Tu-95s had taken off from that base. Now, whether that was to disperse them or if if that's part of the the likely strikes that are ongoing right now, we do not know. Um, worth noting, of course, that in recent weeks, the number of cruise missile strikes and indeed drone attacks has dipped. That has gone hand in hand with with the Ukrainian estimate of this this long anticipated big wave coming. Uh, it might indicate that Russia are rather than trying to dribble out these attacks over over a number of days, they're going for sort of the shock effect of it all happening in one day. We do know they are very low on their precision guided munitions, so maybe that's why they're they're trying to save what stocks they have for these for these big sort of spectaculars. Um, an awful lot of speculation there. As the day wears on, we will all be uh, we will all get more information. Um, but it does look like just to wrap this bit up. Um, other news later, but just to wrap this bit up, two airfields seem to have been subjected to some kind of attack deep inside Russia, and there are um, the air raid alarms are going off across uh, Ukraine right now. But I better take a pause there thank you very much uh, for that dom and as dom said a lot of this uh, we will have to try and verify over the next 24 hours and i'm sure we'll bring you another update uh, tomorrow on what we think is happening inside russia and of course the result of these airstrikes on ukraine which are ongoing right now um arthur scott gellis can i turn to you um away from ukraine away from the war zone there's been quite a few developments in the diplomatic sphere um can we start with this uh this um well i mean it's a huge diplomatic falling out really between between paris and kiev uh, what's happened thanks david yeah so uh, emmanuel macron has uh, he's again provoked outrage in kiev by saying putin needs uh, security guarantees uh, from the west before any peace deal can be achieved um and these comments that he's made they came after a state visit to the us uh, where he dined on american cheese and lobsters with joe biden um, who, of course, also said last week that he would be willing to sit down with Putin if he withdrew his troops from Ukraine. 
Um, so Macron's again trying to sort of position himself as a potential peacemaker. Uh, but it's not the first time he's made himself unpopular with the Ukrainian leadership. Um, at the beginning of the war, obviously, he was criticised uh, for speaking with Putin on the phone uh, as the invasion was underway. And then in May, uh, Zelensky accused him of asking uh, asking him to make territorial concessions so that Putin could save face, uh, although, to be fair, the Elysee later uh, denied this. Uh, and then more recently, he got in trouble for saying France wouldn't respond in kind if Russia launched a nuclear attack on Ukraine. Um, but there are a few reasons why these sorts of comments, uh, the security guarantees comments, uh, provoke such a, ref- a furious response uh, from Kiev. One, I think, is that it's come after, as we've already discussed, a wave of really devastating attacks uh, on Ukrainian cities and infrastructure, which have really made uh, it very difficult for Kiev to kind of even contemplate sitting down with Russia for any sort of negotiations. Um, and then I think it's also significant that Macron... Uh, kind of directly responded to the Kremlin's supposed fear of NATO expansion. Uh, he talks, uh, Macron talks about uh, the deployment of weapons that could threaten Russia uh, and describes NATO coming right up to Russia's doors, which sounds exactly like the, you know, the, the it's, uh, these are all kind of decades old Kremlin lines that Putin and his allies, and as well as Russian and Soviet leaders before them, have, uh, have been repeating for, for decades. Um, interestingly, though, if you go back and listen to Putin's big speech explaining uh, his his reasons for the war, he doesn't actually. I don't think. I don't think he actually did mention uh, NATO. Um, so comments like this anger Ukraine because they kind of lend credibility to to Russia's excuses for invading. Um, and then finally, a, a third thing I think is that the prospect of any sort of security guarantees for Russia will have set off alarm bells in Kiev. They'll be asking. What, what will that entail? And, and, and they've obviously launched down this path of, of, of align, closer alignment with, with the West, whether that's just the EU or, or NATO. Um, and so they'll be very concerned that they'll have to abandon or walk back any of those plans. Um, and then uh, today, uh, Germany's Olaf Scholz seems to have kind of echoed this, uh, this kind of conciliatory tone that we've seen from Emmanuel Macron, although in a much more guarded way. Um, he's written an opinion piece in Foreign Affairs today uh, where he warns about a kind of return to the Cold War and, and warns against dividing the world into different blocks. Um, uh, it's, 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 in some ways, it's unsurprising, I think, because uh, you know, the scars of, of, of the last time the world was divided in half uh, are very much on show in Berlin. Um, so, I, yeah, so I don't think it's that surprising that this is the era of history that he's chosen to invoke. Uh, but nevertheless, I do think it's, um, you know, it's kind of further evidence, isn't it, that some European leaders appear to be kind of softening their stance uh, on negotiating an end to the war. Well, thanks very much for that, uh, Arthur. Just a, a couple more stories I, I'd quite like you to talk us through. There's a few stories from our Moscow desk that have come out over the weekend. Um, one is on the effect of uh, mobilisation on Russian plumbers. And the second is uh, what's happening in, Russian, uh, in Russia for New Year's Eve. Would you, would you talk us through these stories? Yes. So uh, we've, we, we had a couple of stories over the weekend from uh, James Kilner, who listeners will, will remember from previous episodes. Uh, that kind of point to the further impact that the war is having, you know, within Russia and on ordinary Russians. Um, one was uh, quite a surprising line, I guess, uh, which was that even though it's Russia that's, you know, bombarding Ukraine's energy infrastructure, you know, leaving loads of the country without power and heating, um, many ordinary Russians are also facing a kind of bleak winter. And that's because the engineers who uh, who used to repair the kind of quite... Um, well, the Soviet-era central heating systems that keep apartment complexes and whole towns warm, 
they've been mobilized and sent off to the front lines. Um, so often these these involve uh, you know very large um, city power stations which kind of heat up uh, water and then and then they pump this hot water around the around the cities, um, particularly Siberian cities and things like that, to, to stop them from completely freezing. Temperatures obviously regularly drop to 40 below in, in, in Siberia, so any disruption to these systems can actually be really dangerous. Um, and then the New Year's Eve uh, story is that um, several uh, Russian regions have uh, cancelled their New Year's Eve celebrations, you know, like fireworks d- uh, displays and that sort of thing, uh, so that they can save the money to contribute to the war effort. It's kind of a strange parallel for the many kind of uh, public fundraising efforts that we've seen spring up across Europe, um, you know, to help Ukraine. Uh, but again, you know, it's interesting because it shows that the war is having an impact on the lives of ordinary Russians. Um, and this, you know, would be another apparent breach of uh, this kind of strange covenant that the Kremlin has kind of forged with the people that says, you know, that the, 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 the Russia's leaders are given kind of free reign to do what they want on the international stage in exchange for stability and relative prosperity at home. Um, and it also comes after, you know, late last week, there was a, a Kremlin survey that was leaked um, that showed uh, support for the war had fallen among the Russian public. Well, thank you very much uh, for all of those updates, Arthur. Um, Thank you very much for joining us. Uh, There's, of course, as as you've touched on, a huge economic um, side to this. There's another really big thing that's happened today. The price cap on Russian oil agreed by the EU, G7 and Australia has come into force today, Monday, uh, the 5th of December. Um, It's fantastic to have our economics editor, Sue Chan, here to explain a little bit about what's going on. Um, Sue, thank you so much for joining us. Um, What's happening with uh, with this price cap? Hi, David. Well, there's actually two things that happened today. But yes, as you mentioned, um, a price cap that has been agreed by the G7 uh, plus Australia. So the G7 is the UK, so it's us, the US, Canada, Italy, Germany, France and Japan have agreed on a $60 per barrel limit on the price at which Russian oil can be traded outside the block. So bearing in mind today, I looked just before I entered this room uh, uh, it, Crude oil is currently traded at $87 a barrel on financial markets. So they're trying to cap it uh, well below that price. Um, and your, your, your next question is probably, well, how are they going to do that? Because uh, when governments uh, in general try to control prices, it usually ends badly. So they're not, gonna, they're not planning to flood the market with oil to try and um, you know, increase supply to, to bring the price down. What they're, what they're doing is using... An advantage they have because most um, of the oil that is shipped around the world, it needs to be insured. So when I send something from A to B, um, because it's oil, some of it might fall off into the sea, you might lose some of it, or even worse, uh, it might cause uh, an environmental disaster if, say, there's an oil spillage. So you have to get that um, those containers insured. And the EU, uh, mostly via Lloyds of London in London, or there's a club that's based in London at least, um, does this insurance. And what it's saying is to to these companies, and they're trying to stop um, shipping companies from handling Russian oil unless the price tag is $60 a barrel or below. So they're telling these companies that do these insurance contracts, the companies that ship this oil around the world, when this oil comes to you and the Russian company, etc., says, I want to send this to X country abroad. Unless this uh, this oil is priced at $60 a barrel or below, um, you can't deal with it. And so that comes into effect today. Um, oil prices are up slightly off the back of it. Um, it's too early to say what the 
immediate impact is. Um, but, you know, the, the idea is, you know, since the start of the war, Western governments want to inflict maximum pain um, on Russia by hitting the Kremlin's wallet hard, where it's hardest from oil revenues. Um, but it also wants to minimise the hit to consumers. We've already seen here in the UK our energy bills. We're all thinking twice, you know, do we crank up the heating? Can we afford it? Um, energy bills have shot up here in the UK and across Europe. But So they want to minimise the hit to consumers um, you know, the, the price of inflicting maximum pain on Russia. So do we think it's going to work? And when we were chatting before this, you, you mentioned that there might be some loopholes, there might be ways of getting around this. Could you talk us through that? Yeah, well, as with everything, a lot of this, when you have these international agreements, there's a lot of bargaining going on, a lot of horse trading, you know, the 60 dollars uh, a barrel limit, this, this figure was come upon after months of uh, negotiations. On the one hand, you have countries like Poland, Estonia, Lithuania saying, look, the price, it's too high. The cost of Russia getting out the ground, putting it in a barrel, sending it somewhere is about $20 a barrel. So Russia is still going to be making uh, money out out of this. And if the idea is to minimise the Kremlin's revenues from oil, um, I mean, it's doing that to some extent, but Russia is still making money. And because of the huge jump in the oil price um, this year, in, when Russia first invaded Ukraine, it's actually going to be making more money from oil this year than it did last year. But then on the other hand, you had countries in the EU like Malta, Cyprus, Greece. They, they have huge shipping industries saying, hey, this is a big part of our economy. You need to actually price it a little bit higher. It needs to be higher than $60 a barrel so that we don't get hurt disproportionately from this deal. So I think America plays a big role in trying to, to broker this. They've come to the $60 per barrel limit. I mean, Again, this is the first day we've seen prices rise slightly. Russia, a spokesman today, said we will re- retaliate. They didn't um, specify how. Uh, I'm not sure how they would, but it also they also said that it wouldn't stop it um, its military uh, campaign either. In in terms of loopholes, yeah, there there are potentially a, a lot of loopholes. I mean. This is a supply chain. You know, you have a, a Russian company, it comes out of Russia, it goes through a shipping company. They all have to certify what the price is. And, you know, there, there could be records, there's a risk that records could be falsified by Russia and trading partners who want to keep that oil flowing. The Kremlin said it won't sell to countries that comply with this price mechanism. So, you know, there, there are, you know, potentially ways that countries could find um uh, ways around it. I was looking through the history books before I, um, I came and sat down here. You know, a similar thing happened when the UN uh, during the 1990s tried to do something, uh, a similar plan in Iraq. There was this famous all for food program and a lo- lots of countries um, overpaid for uh, other commodities such as uh, as wheat. Uh, you know, the, the thing with when you with money is that it's fungible. So you can say, yes, I'm paying this for wheat when actually I'm actually paying a little bit more for for oil. And who can say? Who can prove it? And uh, it, it's very difficult. Um, and also, there's other countries involved. So as the EU has turned its back on Russian oil. Um, Russia has tried to turn towards other countries, China, India. They've been able to 
pick up millions of uh, barrels uh, per day at a discount price. And if these countries can find insurers and the EU is not the only um, EU companies are, are not the only companies that offer this insurance, um, if they can find other companies to, to insure them, they can snap up Russian oil at any price. So there, there are potential loopholes and i think this regime the policymakers who who announced this said you know we're going to tweak this um and we'll see how it goes but it's day one as you say well thank you so much uh, for all of that just a, just a quick question from me could you put this a little bit into context maybe for our british and american listeners what what will what could this mean for british consumers and for american consumers i, th- I think we've described the sort of theory of it and the loopholes extremely well you've given us a really good understanding of that but in in practical terms what might this actually look like for for the person from the ordinary man in the street if you like so it, it, it depends on what happens with supply i mean in terms of the uk we are very dependent on energy imports but not very dependent on Russian imports. So, uh, for example, last year we spent, that's 2021, we spent about half a billion pounds on importing uh, Russian fuels. Um, that's now gone to zero as of the summer. So what did we used to buy from Russia? We bought uh, mainly diesel fuel, some jet fuel, and uh, the government here has said we're going to try and get more of that from Saudi Arabia, from Kuwait, from Norway, and all these other countries are trying to, everyone's trying to protect their finances. We're in a cost of living crisis. Governments are trying to find money. So the countries outside Russia are also ramping up production. So we're, in terms of the UK, we are already pivoting or on our way to pivoting, you know, pretty much away from our reliance on on, on Russian oil. Um However, we are still very exposed to, as we've seen, you probably see that on your own uh, uh, gas and electricity bill. And obviously the government is, uh, here has tried to cap uh, en- energy bills at uh, an average of £2,500 uh, at least this winter. So uh, direct as a direct result of these plans, I, I don't see a massive difference i mean energy bills are, are still going up i mean gas prices this this is not a, a cap on gas imports they're sort of extremely volatile it depends on how cold it is here in the uk we like to talk about the weather a lot but it does depend um on the weather and how cold the winter is and how much um we have to import because we're not like france you know we don't have a nuclear fleet that helps to keep the lights on so we do depend not on russia for energy but you know we we get a lot of our imports from 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 norway um etc in terms of in america they're much less dependent on energy imports thanks to shell largely um so you know they they were importing some russian refined products but um you know uh, america also took steps to to ban uh, Russian energy uh, when the invasion started. Well, thanks so much uh, for that, Sue. Is it all right if Dom asks a question? Go ahead. <laughs> I, I would never say no. Is it all right? I'm not going to bite. <laughs> <Sorry. laughs> no, just next door. Exactly. Uh, Sue, I, lovely. Thanks, thanks again for, for doing this. Um, China, there is talk that uh, President Xi might be, might be loosening the COVID restrictions slightly in in response to the wave of, of protests now let's not talk covid for a moment and um and the the impacts directly on the health side but if the chinese economy starts ramping up again over the next few weeks uh what impact will that have or how how does that gel with the with the news today about the the oil cap 
Well, China is the world's factory. It still is. And it has an insatiable demand for energy and Russian crude is some of that. So as Russian imports into the EU have fallen, I think they've fallen from around two and a half million barrels per day at the start of the year to around half that or just over half that. Don't don't quote me on it, but it's it's around 1.4 million barrels per day per day as of now. So as the EU has sort of tried to wean itself off Russian oil, it has been shipping, as as I said earlier, to to China and India uh, and I think Turkey. So they've made up for that drop in demand, ramping up their purchases by about, I I think, a million extra uh, barrels per day are going to those countries instead. And yeah, if China, you know, if the Chinese economy does open up, if factories demand from abroad requires them to ramp up, then yeah, China will be a bigger customer. I, I think the last time I was in it, I was talking about some of um, Russia's ambitions and it is looking east. All of its projects, its pipelines are, are being built. They're being built eastwards. They're not being built westwards. So Vladimir Putin wants to build ties with Beijing And if the Chinese economy ramps up and Russia is selling oil at a discount, even though they might have to pay a bigger cost to get it from Russia to China by sea, though, you know, they've got sort of um, pipelines already in place to to get it over the land, then, um, you know, that could be one potential avenue uh, for those Russian barrels of oil that don't have a home anymore. Thank you. And just one more, if I if I may, um, given the complexity around all economic measures and and the ways of getting around sanctions for those that really want to, how effective do you think these kind of means are, these measures are, when it comes to trying to um, influence um, uh, the actions of a war that's happening you know, right, right here and right now? Oh, that's a tough one, isn't it, to end with? Um... I think the, the thing is with the, with the price cap, so in parallel to um, what's been announced today, the EU has actually you know, banned, banned Russian crude oil imports by sea. So there's a price cap on stuff that's you know, flowing outside. But from today, the EU, uh, you know, unless it's already on its way, it's not accepting uh, crude oil shipments by sea. Um, but even then, it's been quite difficult. I say by sea because um, there's still a, uh, some pipelines that, that send crude oil from Russia um, into the rest of Europe, um, mainly to Germany and to Poland, um, that have not been banned. So, you know, this this is a slow process and it is a slow... Everything is slow. We, we can't forget that, you know, the, the EU last year relied on Russia for 25% of its crude oil imports. That's a big number and it's hard to to wean off. And, you know, as the fighting continues, you know, uh, they're they're looking for ways to try and cut off um, Russia from the rest of the world, but while not hurting themselves. I mean, you know, Europe has an energy crisis and, you know, some analysts are saying it's going to be worse next year because you know germany etc they've done everything they can to you know and there's been a mild autumn to kind of you know get their gas storage levels up make sure that they're prepared for this winter but a lot of people are saying that next winter 
is going to be worse because you know they've got this ban these bans in place now um and the alternative sources of energy we're all fighting for the same thing and you know if you want it you've got you've got to pony up so there is a fine balance and yes they want to continue to apply pressure on the kremlin um but it will continue to be that fine balance going forward and uh, you know governments as we've seen we're trying to agree the 60 dollars per barrel cap you know everyone's fighting for their own interest they're, you know they're fighting for ukraine uh, but but it, it you know it, it's it's kind of it's not always been happy families and i i think it's going to continue um as the war continues unfortunately well, thank you very much, uh, Sue Chan, for all of that. Dom, can I come back to you? There's just one update I think we should talk about. Um, well, actually, no, let's, let's go first to um, Arthur Scott Geddes talked us through some of the diplomatic um, events of the last few days, the falling out between Paris and Kiev and Schultz's intervention. You had some thoughts on them. What are they? Yeah, I just think it's extremely dangerous um, to... To, to, to blur the military and the diplomatic. Now, I'm not suggesting that, that you shouldn't try and do both, but I, I'm just saying it, you, you need to be on the on the, your absolute A game to do to do that. And I'm not sure these guys are, especially President Macron. So he's talking about Russia needing security guarantees, which, OK, I see, you know, keeps gone through the roof on this. And I think I think they're quite right here because, I mean, anything that nods towards a moral equivalence on of, of Ukraine and Russia over this conflict is extremely dangerous territory. And if these ideas that the more we start talking about security guarantees for Russia, and then of course, there's, there's always going to be that, uh, that that area of comment about, well, it's all NATO's fault for gobbling up all these all these countries, you know, et cetera, et cetera. We've heard all the arguments before. But anything that suggests that there's there's a moral equivalence is is really, really dodgy ground, I suggest. And if you if you start talking about security guarantees for Russia, and then it's picked up by someone else, and guess who that's going to be? It's going to be you know all the, the Russian sites and and uh, and Russia Russo friendly areas talking about security guarantees, blah blah blah. It then becomes a currency, which means that then when you when you stop talking about it, if you stop talking about security guarantees for Russia, then Russia can say, ah, oh, well you know the the West are rowing back on their earlier ideas of security guarantees. So it becomes a thing in and of itself. So you play with these things. You've got to be very very careful. And I'm not sure. I'm not sure Mr. Macron has, has really thought thought this through here. Um, his strategy. I don't know what his strategy is, but but the the way it's being communicated at the moment, I think, is just leaving. Um, he is leaving himself open to huge criticism political criticism and he's giving great sucker to putin and russia so i think i think any talk security guarantees is, is just is just ridiculous right now um and secondly um mr schultz he's saying that we don't want to get into another another cold war again i think you need, just need to be a bit careful here because you know if you blur the lines but you know, the cold war was a, a battle of, of ideologies and you could argue that there's a there is a, an emerging cold war between you know, the West, if you like, for for ease of a ease of an expression, and China over how um, society should be ordered and and managed and led, etc., cetera, etc. Cetera. I think that is a, a far cry from what's happening now against Russia or the model that Russia is offering the world. I mean, Russia is offering a kind of you know gangsterism, cronyism, mafia state whatever however you want to call it, prepared to use terrorism, i.e. violence for a political end. I mean, it's not a system they're offering. It's just a bunch of tired old men trying to make money. And I, and I, I think to try and talk about that in terms of a Cold War 
is is wrong because it, again it equates to systems and there is not a system so in that in that regard i think uh, mr schultz's um chancellor schultz is, is correct there is not a, a cold war here with russia because it, it it affords them the luxury of saying that what they're doing is a is a is a very is a um a realistic political offer to the people that they can choose or not choose of course they get no choice whatsoever this, this thing is lumped on them whether they like it or not so there is no cold war there but the more um, he says we should we should we should not use these terms anymore. I think it pulls the rug from under the the intellectual curiosity that would then lead us to think. Well, hang on, what what, what do we mean by a cold war, and what is happening more broadly to um, power and society in the twenty first century vis a vis China? Okay, a conversation for another day. But I think that is that is a you know worth in exploring if we think there is a a cold war of ideologies and different system of human organization between the west and china um but i, I think by just by just cutting that conversation off and saying well we, we can't talk about it in, in terms of russia whilst i think that is correct in terms of russia i'd be very loath to to say that that is an outdated outdated notion and uh, you know any talk of the cold war ended in 1989 no, that's fascinating. Thank you very much, Dom, for bringing that up. Uh, there's just one more thing I'd quite like uh, for you to talk about. Uh, there's been an update from a US intelligence officer who said that the fighting in Ukraine has fallen to a reduced tempo. Um, I, just talk us through that a little bit. Can you give us a lay of the land across the lines at the moment? Yeah, so these were comments at a security forum over the weekend by Avril Haines, the US director of, of um, national intelligence. And she was saying that, that she was basically making the point that the the Great Freeze is going to is going to just halt uh, any kind of decisive military move over over the winter. Um, you know, I'm not so sure about that. To be perfectly honest, I mean, what the Great Freeze is going to do, for for want of you know stating the blindingly obvious, it's going to freeze the ground. Okay, and once you get more than about a foot of hard frost, then tanks and other heavy vehicles can can trundle across that quite quite happily. I mean, we can get into the debate about wheels versus tracks and you know, which vehicles are better for what type of ground and so on and so forth. It all comes down to ground pressure. And if you divide the weight of the, of the vehicle by the footprint on the ground, um, which is, you know, tanks, you, you, you can, you, you've got the whole length of both tracks, which is much more, a much bigger distance than the, than the footprint of wheels. Um, so tanks can get across uh, much worse ground, boggy ground, muddy ground than wheels can. Wheels or you know, mo- modern um, variable pressure systems, you can um, you can basically increase the size of the wheel on the ground by you know, reduce the reduce the pressure of the tire, so it's a bit more squidgy and sort of you know, spreads out across the um, across the ground. Um, so you lower the pressure of the of the of the wheels basically, so it can get across better ground. Now, a lot of these ideas came in. Um, in Afghanistan, about uh, about having having wheeled, ve- wheeled vehicles that are generally lower to maintain, they're, they're not as needy as um, as tracks, um, but they themselves, they, I mean, they obviously need a lot of maintenance. But there's this perennial debate about wheel, wheels and tracks. But the the point I'm making is that I think if you look at what's been gifted to Ukraine over the last few months, the US alone has gifted hundreds of Humvees, the high, crikey, help me out here, guys, high mobility 
high mobility wheeled vehicles. I'm missing an M. There's another M in there somewhere. Um, high mobility multi-purpose wheeled vehicles. Anyway, you know the the big GP things that we that we see around and about. Hundreds of those have been donated. Each, each drawdown that President Biden authorizes, there's about 100 or 150, 125. I mean, it's, all, it's triple figures each time. So Ukraine have been gifted hundreds of these very very capable vehicles, very versatile vehicles. And I just wonder if what they are doing or what they are um, shaping up for is to build a force that is able to rapidly exploit success. So as we saw uh, up in the uh, Kharkiv region back in September, when and if you're able to break through that crust of Russian defences, then you can run right behind it. The ground, if it's big and open country, and in the winter if it's nice and hard and frozen, then you can you can drive uh, many many you know, long distances, and you're only limited by your your risk appetite and and the geography. So I just wonder if if the uh, if Ukraine is building up that kind of doctrine, being able to rapidly exploit success, particularly with I don't mean to draw it all down to one piece of equipment like the Humvees, but you know there's a lot more to it than that. Um, but I just I, I just think Avril Haines might be a little bit quick out of the blocks to say that that the um, that everything's going to freeze. I mean, it will literally freeze over the winter, but the, the the battle lines will will freeze. I mean, there's a huge the front line is huge. Russia does not have the personnel or the equipment does not have the capability to put a big trench system all the way along. They are digging trenches, as we know, um, anti-tank and, and um, other other trench systems. But I mean, that's a thin crust. And I think if, if Ukraine are able to get through there, then the, the ground is going to lend itself, you know, physically lend itself to um, to manoeuvre when it gets really, really cold. Of course, with with extremely low temperatures, you've then got the impact on petrol oil lubricants, the, got the impact on the men and women actually in the things, and so on and so forth. So it's not it's not the be all and end all. But I just think equating this down to sort of geology and saying oh, it's going to be so cold they won't do anything is is a little bit premature. Just just want to keep an eye out for that. Thanks, Tom. Just one more. We've got a question from a listener for you, and then we'll go to our final thoughts from you and Suchan. Uh, this is a question from James, and I think it relates to. Uh, your earlier uh, points about these suspect, well, these explosions at Russian air bases deep inside Russia. James asks, uh, could Russia's size and number of military bases and military reserves uh, count against them? Ukraine could be in a very uh, target-rich time with Russia, unable to protect even a fraction of its infrastructure. Its size would count against it. I mean, I, th- I think this, this kind of rolls on actually from what you were just saying. So would you like to take that? Yeah, and, and thanks, for the, thanks for the question. I mean, I th- that is, I think that's, probably accurate in as much as the, you know, the greater the target um, environment, um, the, the, the more stuff you can hit. But you've got to be very, very careful about extrapolating that to, oh, well, it, you know, we just fire, fire these things anyway and we'll, we'll hit something of value. I mean, no, you won't always hit something of, of great value. You have to be very selective in your, in your targeting. Think about what, what effect do you want to achieve and therefore what's the target that's best placed to go for to achieve that end. And then you've got to do what's called weapons target matching i.e. make sure you've got the, the right munition the the right weapon to go and go and hit the thing you want to do uh, so you might identify that there's a fantastic headquarters or a great air defense site or an electronic warfare site or a logistics depot or a fuel a fuel dump an arms cache whatever it is um, but where it is and the defenses around it means you you might not be able to use the the, the weapon you want, you've got to use something else. You might not have so many of those other things. There might be other targets of higher priority for those missiles. Or um, you, you, you'd, be, you'd be unwise to just scattergun your, your munitions across, across the front. You need to, one of the, one of the British 
ten, ten principles of war is concentration of force. So you need to kind of bring your your military capability together at a time and place of your choosing. That way, you're, you've got a much higher chance of success of, of punching through and and achieving the aim you want. Just sort of going for it. Um, there's a time and a place, of course, when the when the you know the, the blood is up, and uh, you just need to kind of get on your get off your belt buckle and and run at them um you know but but just going for it is a very very quick way of expending all your ammunition and especially the very sophisticated uh, weapons they'll be depleted very very quickly and you might do that for for marginal gain so yes a much greater attack surface because russia is a, is a bigger a bigger thing to to hit and a, and a bigger armed force there um to aim at but i think i think ukraine would still be um as as i think they are being very very cautious about what they hit when sequencing that with other with other actions to try and keep some sort of momentum um, and in order to have a a bigger have an operational or a, or a strategic effect rather than just the the low level tactical effect of blowing stuff up but uh, but no I think you're right there is it's a much bigger attack surface so they can they, so they can choose if their intelligence is is good enough to identify all these all these nodes and all these these bits of critical equipment then yes they 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 are able to um, select uh, from a much broader list. Of course, it works the other way as well. If you are much smaller, then you have to arguably put a put a greater proportion of your force into protecting what you've got. So it is all swings and roundabouts, but uh, inherently not a not not um, you know you are not not incorrect in your assumption. Well, thank you, James, for the question, and thank you, Dom, for your answer there. Uh, I think we've come to the end of our time uh, together today. So can I just uh, go to both of you for your final thoughts? What will you be looking at over the next few days or even few weeks when it comes to some of the economic things we've been discussing today? Uh, Su Chen, would you uh, just sum up what you've been talking about today and let us know what, what you're thinking, what you're looking at over the next week? Sure, I'll try and keep it short. I think um, anyone listening over the lunchtime, thanks for sticking with us. We'll be right at the corner of your sandwich with the last few uh, bites of, of last night's dinner. But I, I mean, you know, today, the, the, the things that are coming into effect today are the biggest tranche of sanctions on Russian oil we've seen to date. You know, they're designed to hurt Russia where it, where it hurts most in the pocket but keep the oil flowing around the world. Whether it's going to work or not is another question. I mean, you know, there's a big question over will a non-European insurance market emerge from this? Can anyone do this? You know, is anyone prepared to insure these tankers? Um, And at what price? You know, and will tanker owners play ball with these sanctions? Um, that's also an open question. And, you know, how effective will this cap be? I mean, policymakers said, you know, it, it's designed to to be reviewed. So, it, you know, the, the price cap will always be below uh, the, the going rate uh, on the market. Um, but there are a lot of unanswered questions. I mean, you know, th- this will hurt the Russian economy as sanctions have done. Um, but whether it will make a massive difference in terms of, you know, boots on the ground or Russia's offensive. I mean, if you go by what the spokesman said this morning, they said it categorically won't. Um, But then, you know, uh, let's talk soon. (laughs) Absolutely. Well, thank you so much, uh, Sue, for your time today. It's really great to have you back on. Uh, Dom Nichols, your final thoughts, please. 
Um, I've been watching over the weekend a visit by Sergei Shoigu, uh, Russia's defence minister, to his opposite number in Belarus, Viktor Krenin. He went over on Saturday, Sergei Shoigu. Now, we're not entirely sure what, what they're up to. Um, they apparently signed signed some updates to a security treaty from 1997. He then went and met Lukashenko. Now, we talked about Belarus recently. Belarus hosts uh, Russian troops. We think they're doing training there. We think they they launched. Well, we know they launched into the north of Ukraine from Belarus. We think a lot of aircraft are taking off from Belarus and missiles fired from there. Um, but we also think that that Lukashenko is trying to play a, a trying to be as. Um, uh, trying to limit his involvement, limit his support, and certainly limit the Belarusian armed forces being subsumed by Russia and and wait, you know, starting a war or, or launching their own uh, attack uh, into Ukraine. So, quite what they're doing, we're not we're not sure. Ukraine have had to apportion um, capabilities to the north of the country in case of this. You know, that, that that's a sensible thing to do. Now, and all the joint training that's been going on for months now in Belarus has been fairly low level, we think, sort of at least company sized, if not smaller. So nothing too big. But the more that uh, Belarus is drawn into this, the greater a headache that's going to be for Kiev. If there's another, arguably another front or another few thousand troops from uh, um, that then are, are pushed against them. So just, just want to keep an eye on what's happening in Belarus and see if we get any more information about quite what Sergei Shoyu uh, was uh, was doing there at the weekend. And just finally, finally, an update on the so the attacks that have been going on, that we the air raids have been going on since we've been since we've been talking, there are unconfirmed reports, and I, I reiterate the unconfirmed nature of that. You know, do seek information elsewhere. Unconfirmed reports of cruise missile launches from the Caspian Sea and also from the Black Sea Fleet um, and other do- do- dozens uh, of um, air-launched cruise missiles, which may come from these these uh, the, the long-range bombers, as mentioned at the start, um, and may, but may also have come from. Uh, from the Black Sea Fleet. But it looks as if there's a a large attack ongoing across the entire country of Ukraine uh, as we speak. Thank you to Arthur, Dom and Sue for that. We now have a short interview with our global health reporter, Harriet Barber. Last week, Harriet attended an international conference on sexual violence in war. Just a note to our listeners, this interview contains graphic descriptions of sexual violence that some listeners might find triggering and disturbing. So, Harriet, you were at a major international conference for preventing sexual violence in conflict. It was in London. Last week, dozens of survivors from around the world spoke out about their abuse. Looking at Ukraine in particular, what did you learn about the last nine months? Hmm. The conference was hosted by James Cleverly, the Foreign Secretary. Guests from 40 countries came, including the First Lady of Ukraine. James Cleverly described an alarming number of reports of sexual violence in the last nine months, but there was also quite a lot of talk about abuse that happened in 2014 as well. The UN has started to document that. Sexual violence in conflict has long been used as a tactic of war, torture, terrorism and repression, and it's used against men, women and children. It's currently happening in, they think, about 18 active conflicts around the world, including Syria, South Sudan. What was talked about in terms of Ukraine since the full-scale invasion There's been reports, horrendous reports, of people being forced to parade naked in the streets, women being gang raped, men being castrated. There was also one really awful report of a four-year-old child being forced to give oral sex. 
You write about how the UN say the known reports are the, just the tip of the iceberg. That's the quote, the tip of the iceberg. What do you mean by that? So it can take years, even decades, for people to come to terms with their abuse and speak openly about it. In Bosnia, where women were raped in the conflict 30 years ago, some are only now starting to tell their stories. Survivors talk about feeling shame, not wanting to re-traumatise their families. And men also often don't talk about sexual assault. They instead speak about torture. The sexual violence used in Ukraine was described as, uh, again, this is a quote, systematic. Can you Mm. talk us through why the UN has come to that conclusion? Because that's Mm. something more than, uh, or something different to potentially, um, uh, random acts of violence. What does systematic mean in this context? So Reuters news agency recently reported that some Russian commanders have encouraged and ordered sexual violence which appears to show planning of the abuse on a more systematic level. People who I spoke to who were working on the ground helping sexual abuse victims spoke about there being two methods to the sexual violence in this conflict. So the first is staged during an attack on a village and involves dragging people out on the streets, parading them. Women often face sexual violence afterwards in their homes. There were lots of reports of elderly women being abused in this way. And the second pattern of abuse happens in the detention centres in occupied territories. It's been hard to document this because people are still captive, but those who have fled or been liberated have spoke of sexual torture, particularly against men, in the form of genital electrocution and castration. The -the on-the-ground teams have also said that compared to 2014, there's now an added element of hate speech accompanying these crimes. So... There were reports of pregnant women being beaten and being told that there's nothing bad about a small, dirty Ukrainian dying, for example. Uh, And there's also been more reports of attacks being perpetrated in front of family members, which sort of speaks to uh, the tactic of destroying communities and and neighbourhoods. Many survivors spoke at this conference. What did you hear from them? They, they really did want to speak out. They've called for a much tougher international response. The first prosecution for rape as a war crime didn't happen until 1998. But since then, it still doesn't happen all that often. It can take decades to hold people to account. And, and generally, you can count on your hand the amount of successful um, convictions there have been. So there's calls for better justice systems, calls for sanctions on individuals and states, much in the same ways that Russia's assets have been sanctioned. But there was also a lot of frustration. Survivors said that they've heard these promises for years and years and governments talk about trying to fix the problem and it doesn't really seem to be happening. Thank you very much, Harriet, for that. Thanks for having me. Ukraine The Latest is an original podcast by The Telegraph. To stay on top of all of our Ukraine news, analysis and dispatches from the ground, subscribe to The Telegraph. You can get your first 30 days completely free at telegraph.co.uk forward slash audio. You can also listen to this conversation live at 1pm each weekday on Twitter Spaces. Follow The Telegraph on Twitter so you don't miss it. If you enjoyed this podcast, please consider following Ukraine The Latest on your preferred podcast app. And if you have a moment, do leave a review as it helps others find the show. To our listeners on YouTube, for reasons beyond our control, there's sometimes a delay between broadcast and upload, so if you do want to hear an episode as soon as possible, it's available on your podcast apps. Please search for Ukraine The Latest on Spotify, Apple Podcasts, or your preferred app, and check out the Ukraine page on the Telegraph website. As ever, you can get in touch directly to ask questions or give comments by emailing podcasts at telegraph.co.uk. We do read every message. We are especially interested to hear where you are listening from around the world. 
Ukraine The Latest is produced by Louisa Wells and Giles Gear. And today on Twitter, Gemma Farrell. Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more. And it's all priced at 50 to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com trip for free shipping and 365-day returns.